Mike Storm, and together we aim to solve cybersecurity challenges one principle at a time. The only way to be unhackable is to outwit the attacker. Deception is the method. Knowledge of how to deceive is the means. Taking your security personally is the motivation. This is Unhackable, your security podcast about deception and personal security. Target acquired. Let's go. Sun Tzu from The Art of War said that all warfare is deception. Now, deception is most easily executed through the use of fear and empathy, two things that are very strong emotions in the human psychology. And one area where this information is used against us is with scams. And of course, the goal of the Unhackable podcast is to deceive the deceivers. And therefore, the topic of discussion today, how do we scam the scammers? How do we undo these tactics that they're executing against us? How do we save Save ourselves ourselves from the potential of loss, from the potential of harmful activity to our identities, our credit, and so forth? So with me today, I have Nick. Nick, how you doing today? I think I'm okay, Mike. How are you doing? I I think I'm okay too. In fact, I think if I was any better, it probably would not be legal. (laughs) (laughs) So Nick, uh, you know, you and I have had conversations about scams, even in our last episode, you talked about getting texts and phone calls and things like this. I think the audience out there appreciates the fact that this is everybody's problem, right? And that we all have to understand what's going on and, you know, really know how to outwit the attacker because they're so widely distributed, right? I mean, they're, they seem to be done in mass and it doesn't matter what industry you're in, I think is the key, right? Oh, absolutely. Without discrimination, they make their living running scams. Exactly. You know, it's really interesting to me, the evolution of scams. Back in the day, I remember in the 90s, you know, getting an email from a Nigerian prince saying that they couldn't transfer their $20 million into a US bank account and some sob story about something that had happened and really trying to play on the empathy of, you know, I really do feel sorry for you, but at the same time, man, that $20 million sounds good. How much does it cost? You're thinking, well, it's just a thousand dollars. That's all it is. It's a thousand dollars to pay for the transfer fee, which is real. I mean, it's required to transfer money sometimes internationally. And, you know, the objective of these, we call them 419 scams, was to, of course, keep that thousand dollars. And if they could do this, you know, hundreds of thousands of times, (laughs) that's a lot of money that they could use. And this was all done in email, right? This was all done using, you know, 1990s technology, nothing that was mind boggling or earth shattering as far as capability. So you've heard of these, right, Nick? Yeah. And it's gotten so much more sophisticated these days. Agreed. Yeah. With SMS messages, with phone calls. You know, it's interesting at Cisco, we've just migrated some things to online channels. We used to use a lot of IP telephony, even in the remote sites. And I remember every day walking in and inevitably there was a message on my phone from either somebody saying that I owed back taxes and was being taken to court by the FBI or the IRS. This was a business line. This wasn't even my personal phone. It was a business line. And they knew your name? They knew my name. They knew my number. It's mind boggling these days, you know, how frequent this is. The goal of this episode, for sure, let's have a a set of tactics which will help us to not only recognize the scam, but understand how to avoid it, right? I think that's really the key here, preventing ourselves from becoming a victim of scam. Sound good? Sounds great, Mike. Yeah, I'm expecting to hear more about how to identify scams, red flags. Yeah, and sometimes it's really hard to tell. 
And an example would be there was a huge, huge scamming ring coming out of Jamaica. And you may have heard of this. There were quite a lot of them that were recently indicted, but this went on for a long time. And these were lottery scams. Now, kind of the story behind this was they would call you and say that your name has been randomly picked to share in a prize or that you've won a prize and you've also won a car, lots of things. But what's interesting was they got their experience for how to talk to people and how to be empathetic to the person they're talking to from being part of a call center, a customer service line. As we saw a lot of US and and Canadian companies that would use remote call centers in Jamaica, this is where they got their training. Do you believe that? Oh man. They were actually trained and given an education in customer service to become convincing. And they would, you know, not only use a lot of tools to figure out a lot of things about their victim, like where they lived, um, you know, potentially using Google Earth to figure out the color of the car in their driveway or, you know, how close they were to the bank, things like this that were interesting to them for their execution of the crime. But one of the things that they would do is they would engage in conversation and many times connect with the person on a personal level using human nature against them, if you will. It sounds like they've already got a bunch of personal information on you before they call. Yeah, and a lot of training. So you got to think these are cold calls they're making. I remember watching a show once where they kind of gone behind the scenes with some of these scamming rings. And you know, one of the things that kind of jumped out at me was one of the folks there said, yeah, Americans love getting stuff for free. And that resonated with me because you got to think about this. When was the last time that I actually got something that was too good to be true? That should be the first red flag. Absolutely, it should. You're not going to win something that you didn't enter. (laughs) That's first and foremost, right? You're not going to win money randomly because somebody emails you or sends you a text about you know, a bank transfer. It's probably not legitimate and it should be the first red flag. I was in a bank just a few months ago. I was overhearing this conversation in one of the offices behind me and there was a lady there. What jumped out at me first was, wouldn't you do that for $19 million? So I started listening a little bit more, you know, eased dropping, of course, because it was interesting to me. And I realized that in 2021, there was someone that still believed that they could navigate through a 419 scam where someone needed to transfer $19 million and wanted the transfer fees. They had gone so far as to get a lawyer, have the lawyer check out the source, which was a legitimate source, legitimate bank. The person they were talking to was in fact a lawyer. I mean, everything looked so legit, but it wasn't. People are still falling for this stuff today. It just astounds me that this continues to happen. It just makes me think, when has some something that's too good to be true actually happened. Exactly. I'm sure I would do a lot of research for $19 million, but the last thing that I want to do is fall victim to a scam. That's something that it's almost inevitable, but it's avoidable. And I really think that's the reason for this episode. And some people find it so difficult to turn their back. And again, I'm going to mention the elderly and people that are lonely. It's hard. They just want some attention. Somebody sounds kind and interested in them on the other end of the line. They've got something that you want. They're offering it to you. They're begging you to take the money. Again, preying on that empathy side of human nature and of the human psyche. The other one that's been really challenging is the other emotion that I mentioned in the intro, which is fear. Fear and empathy are two very, very powerful emotions. And I think fear even more so. And there's a lot of scams that have happened over the past number of years. You know, one that was pretty prominent about the IRS was going to fine you and put you in jail for back taxes. There's been extortion schemes. There's what they call uh, romance scams and things which have really played on 
on the fear emotion of a lot of folks. And I think that this personal extortion that we saw back in the 2019-2020 timeframe was especially notable. Someone would contact you and say that they had pictures or videos or something of you doing something that you shouldn't be doing and they weren't real specific. But if you didn't pay them, they would release it to your spouse or to your employer. And there could be a lot of fear tied up, just not even knowing what it was they had on you, right? Right. And they don't even feel bad about it. They feel that if you are stupid enough to give them your money, that they earned it. They're entitled to it. That was actually on that show about the Jamaican scammers, the lottery scams. That's the way they felt. If you're too stupid to fall for this, you don't deserve the money anyway. Yeah, I'm not trying to call anyone stupid. I want to make sure people are aware. And that's the key. I mean, these folks do not care about you. No matter how they sound, no matter what they say, they do not care about your feelings, your finances, your family, your reputation, anything. I mean, it's all about money to them. So when these calls come in, is it best to hang up? Do you say hello? They say, hey, I'm looking for you by your name and I know where you live. How do you respond to that, Mike? Let's go through and kind of lay this out. We'll actually go through and implement some tactics here as we do on Unhackable to identify the process of changing our behavior. And I think the first thing we want to know is what scams are out there and know the red flags. And then I'll tell you how to handle it. There's scams that are targeting lots of different demographics. There's scams that target students because the student population is particularly ripe for you know being able to take money just due to things like student aid. Many times students are living on their own for the first time. So they're trying to juggle everything. So they seem to be pretty prime targets. But there's also scams that target parents, working adults, retirees, elderly, as you said, and some of them overlap. Students, you've got check cashing, you've got fake goods or fake rentals for dorm or close to campus, overpayment, student aid, tech support. Some of these categories are really prominent. For parents, working adults, and so forth, charity, debt relief, investment, lottery, sweepstakes, mortgage closing. I mean, these are some of the major categories. But there's a lot of other things too, like just an email compromise or a tech support. Tech support seems to be a pretty common one for those that work in a facility that does have tech support. You'll get someone on the other line that is looking to take advantage of your credentials, claiming that they're from tech support and are going to fix a problem. Tactic number one. Roll the tape know what scams are out there and that you know the red flags. So what are the red flags? You're instructed not to trust someone or something. That's a red flag. You're pressured to send money. You're threatened with law enforcement action. Possibly told to purchase gift cards and provide codes as a form of payment. That's one that's very prominent. Asked to cash a check for a stranger or send money via wire transfer or some other service such as Zelle or one of these other tools where you can instantly send money. Word of caution for those of you that sell stuff on Craigslist, I came across a scam that I thought was pretty compelling, to be honest. Basically, I was selling some furniture, I believe, and somebody contacted me back pretty quickly and said, I want it. I'm going to send someone to pick it up. They're going to give you a check for $500 more than I was asking. It was a pretty big set of furniture. If you wouldn't mind, pay them the 50 bucks for their delivery because I'm not in town, but I want to get it before anyone else. And it sounded pretty legit. And I was like, but you know, at the same time, I've just never heard of this before. I started looking into it and realized the whole point of it was you're going to give the delivery driver between 50 and 200 bucks. You're going to have a check, which you can call and verify is good, but is going to be canceled and you're going to give up your goods. So they got it all. <laughs> they got a little bit of money. They gave you a fake check. You have no idea who they are because they weren't the ones picking it up and you lost your goods. So there's another example of don't, don't ever take, take a, a check. check.
from anyone. That's a good rule. The other thing is depositing a check that overpays for something to send the difference elsewhere, kind of along those lines would be an example. So those would be the red flags. Those are the things. Now, as far as response, you asked about this, Nick. So tactic number two, know the best ways to avoid being scammed. Based on your question, what do you do? Don't respond. Hang up. Don't answer the text. Don't click the email. Avoid it. If you really feel at that moment that was legit and you need to check it out, go check it out on your own control channel. You can look up the website. You can look up the vendor. You can look up the service. Maybe an account that you have that seemed like, well, this just doesn't seem right to me that they would be asking me to click a link. You can call that outfit directly or go to the site, look for messages, try to figure it out. But don't respond to the initial activity if you feel in any way you don't know the source the call, the email, the text, things like that. The other thing you could do is don't answer the phone. Don't even bother. But I would say this, don't trust caller ID. It is so easy to spoof caller ID to make it appear to be from a legitimate caller. Remember, you do not necessarily own your information. There is a tremendous amount of public information out there which allows people to find you, to find where you live, your phone number, your email address, your physical address, the car you drive, the bank you use, all of this information is available. So let's say somebody knew that I used Wells Fargo Bank. They could spoof caller ID to indicate that it was a Wells Fargo number that was calling me to try to get me past that thought that it might not be legit. Don't trust it. So technique number two, know the best way to avoid being scammed. First of all, hang up if you suspect anything. Don't click on the message. And if you insist on checking it out because it is interesting, go directly to the source to verify that information, which is, again, moding we were talking about before. And what's new is don't trust the caller ID because they could spoof that they are calling from, like you said, Wells Fargo, for example, but that's not really where they're calling from. All that stuff can be faked, right? Exactly. And should you ever make the mistake of getting past one of those first two items, you answered the phone because it said your bank's name and they sound legitimate. You know what? You are not required, nor should you give out your information. You need to remember a legitimate outfit is never going to ask you for personal information, your social security number, your bank account number, any of this. Believe me, if Wells Fargo was calling me, they have my number. They're calling me. They know my bank account number. <laughs> they're not going to need it, right? They already have it. And so it's important not to give out personal information unless you're absolutely certain the person and the reason are legitimate. Now, I I had a legitimate call the other day out of the blue. It was from someone at my local bank branch. I didn't know this. And it had the bank's name. And this person reached out and said, you know, we're just contacting some of our customers and we want to find out how you're doing and, and this and that and started to want to verify my identity. So can you give me your name and address? And I was like, no, you know, I kind of fell back on my, my unhackable principles. Right. And I said, no, what was your name? Where did you say you were from? And the person gave gave me their name. They told me where they were from. And I said, I'll tell you what, I will call you back. Didn't get a number from them, just got their information. I looked up the phone number of my local bank branch. I called and asked for the manager and asked, do you have a person of this name working at your branch? They said, yes. Is this person calling customers right now to assist, to help, to, to get feedback? The bank manager said, yes. Said, okay, so we know it's legit. I said, would you mind putting them on? And so they transferred me over and I said, okay, now we can pick up our conversation. So what was the key to that? I initiated the conversation. Yeah, you moted yourself. Right? You reached out directly to the source to make sure that that person is the person that you think it is.
Yep. And you know what's funny about it is the guy that I'm talking to now, he laughed about the situation. He said, so why did you do that? And I said, man, I, I had no idea you were calling. I didn't have any notifications from my bank whatsoever that indicated that I should be getting a call. I wanted to prove it was you before I talked to you. And he thought that was great. He said, I wish everyone would do that. So moral of the story, <laughs> you're, you're not required to give out your information, even if it's a legitimate call. Just be certain before you give out any information. You got to be so mindful. When you receive a call from somebody that says that they're with the bank that you bank with and they're asking you to verify information, it sounds legitimate, but they should know that they called you. Exactly. Because of the amount of identity verification required these days, they always go through a series of questions to prove it's you because they want to make sure that somebody's not spoofing you and trying to get your data, right? That's happened enough in the past five to 10 years that I think most people will think that those questions are purely for identification purposes to make sure that the call is legit. When in fact, you could be giving them the exact information that they need about you in order to execute some nefarious activity. That makes sense. Would the IRS ever reach out to you and tell you that they're going to arrest you on the phone? I will say that I have had a legitimate call from the IRS before because I filed my taxes like right on the date that you could. And so they called me to make sure it was really me. I was very cautious when they called. I, Why are you calling me? Well, you, you submitted a tax return. Here's the code. They had the code that only I know. We just want to make sure that you submitted the tax return. And I said, okay, well, how are you going to know that? I said, just open your tax return, go to this line and tell me the value. And if it's the same, I'll know it's you. The value was kind of a random value on the tax return, but it allowed them to know that I had filed it. So sometimes a really crazy sounding call <laughs> can be legit, but you've got to make sure that you're not giving information out that could be used for the purposes of exploiting your finances or otherwise. Any level of suspicion that you have, it's always better to say, call me back or I'll call you back. Who are you? Where are you calling from? I will call you back to verify the legitimacy of the call. They will not take offense to that, I promise. They're getting very sophisticated when they get a fish on the line. That's when they call their resources in and they might have a dozen people Google imaging your address, your car, what your home looks like, where you are, any information they can get on you to, to prove that they know who they're talking to. And they're just fishing for something. We're trying to avoid these things and we know these things exist, but it's hard to know if it's a scam. Absolutely true, Nick. I think that the thing that people need to realize, there has been tools for years and years that have allowed someone to input one value, social media address, phone number, address, full name, and get a complete collection of all of the data on you in just a couple of seconds, literally under a minute, they can get an entire hackability profile on you. I had one of my white hat hackers back in the day show me one of the early iterations of some of these tool sets that exist. And I was absolutely blown away. It's one of the reasons why I have no social media. This was when uh, MySpace was kind of fading out and Facebook was just starting up. And I said, you know what? After seeing this, I will never have social media. And I don't because I realized that social media was one of the number one information sources, even in tools from that long ago. Sophistication, I think, is an understatement. Getting a fish on the line gives them an indicator of who they're able to talk to. They don't have to do this research ahead of time. All they needed was the number they called. They plug it into the tool. It might even be doing it automatically behind the scenes and stuff's popping up on their screen. Your address, your phone number, your birth date, your spouse's name, your color of your car, how old your mortgage is, how many kids you have. I mean, it could have everything, right? And so we can never underestimate the enemy. All we can do are the simple things that keep us safe. 
Tactic number three, religiously follow the practices that have been outlined in some of the other unhackable episodes. Have control of the channel. Take control of the channel. Make sure that you've initiated that, that you're always going somewhere through the process that you know to be safe and legitimate. Avoid the click. Don't click that text message. I recently had someone tell me the number of messages that they get now that are very personalized from the standpoint of name and business information or bank information or otherwise. Are all of these illegitimate? That was the question. I said, probably. I mean, it's very, very likely they are. Fortunately, that person knows better than to click on them, but that's something that you should be aware of as well. And for all of these really critical services, make sure you're using multi-factor authentication and that you're defending your second factor, both things that you can listen to and learn to do on previous episodes of Unhackable. Yeah, I spent a couple hours just changing as many passwords as I can think of in that and adding MFA. It was quick and easy. I'm glad I did it. It's definitely worth your time, even if you just do them as you access them. That's typically what I had done initially when most of the services started to offer multi-factor. The very next time I went there, which was typically within a day or two of me wanting to execute this, I was able to go and set it up. I've noticed recently that a lot of the services are actually evolving in some of the ways that they support multi-factor. For example, the bank that I use just started supporting supporting hardware keys, which is great. So YubiKey is one of them that I use. It plugs into my computer and they allow me through the advanced security settings. So always check those out on the services you use. Advanced, advanced security, security settings. settings, it allowed me to choose a hardware key as my second factor instead of a phone call or an email or a text message, which I thought was great. And the beauty of that is that that hardware key is serialized and is activated for that session and you physically have to be there to touch it. If you can't physically touch it, then it's not you. And so it's like the ultimate in protection. Small investment. It is a small investment. And quite honestly, it's, it's one of those things that the benefit can certainly outweigh the risk. In the case of a hardware token, for example, a hardware token can prevent the further compromise of a service as a result of a different service being compromised. Meaning somebody compromises your crypto and they get your authentication, they get your phone number, they spoof your number, then they try to go after your bank, but your bank is set up using a hardware token, they won't be able to get in. Now, Mike, is there like a certain net worth that you should have to take that extra step of doing a hardware token? That's a great question, Nick. I would say that there is no such thing as too small. <laughs> if, you're, if your money, finances, family, photos, whatever means anything to you, there should be no minimum amount that you should use to justify your own protection. Is that the next thing? Do you think people are going to start picking up hardware tokens? It's going to be difficult by virtue of the way that they work. I would highly recommend anyone looks into a standard known as FIDO, F-I-D-O. There's a FIDO alliance that exists out there that is focused on these authentication services, these authentication devices. And it's really one step beyond an authenticator app because if somebody steals your phone and can get into your phone, they can also get into your authenticator app. But usually that token, it has to be on the machine it was installed on. It has to be used during that session. So it's not nearly as easy to spoof. But there's a lot of government organizations around the world that are actually contributing to this alliance and making sure that it's not something that is easy to take over. It sounds like it's a bit of extra work, but definitely worth the effort to protect and feel a little bit more secure about what you've got going on. And these things about the tactics regarding, you know, hanging up and don't click on this and moat yourself. And if you insist on looking at 
learned something or if you think, gosh, this is too good to be true, but I'm so interested. I want to look, go directly to the source and don't trust the caller ID. Just make sure that that person that says who they are really is that person. And it's really not that much work to do the multi-factor authentication, to moat yourself, to never use the same passwords twice and hardware tokens, the icing on the cake. You're absolutely right. I mean, that's a great summary. And the interesting thing about what you just went through is that these are all things that in practice we should just do. Once we know how to do them, they're not extra work. I don't spend any extra time at all going to remote services, going to online services and doing what I do. Security is something that I'm entitled to have. And it's just the process by which you use these services that you're implementing here. You're doing things in a very judicious manner to make sure that you're executing the best possible means of keeping yourself safe. Remember, the whole goal is changing our behavior, not adding work to our current workload. This is about changing behavior. When you can change it at the behavioral level, all of a sudden it becomes second nature. Multi-factor authentication is not going to be extra work. In fact, I like the key better because all I have to do is touch it. I don't have to enter my code. <laughs> I don't have to go back to the site and enter the code that's been sent to me. I just touch the key. It's actually quicker. Great stuff. Thanks, Mike. Well, Nick, it's been a pleasure talking with you about this. And again, the reality is that this continues to grow. Monetization of information takes many forms. It's not just ransomware. It's not just identity theft, but scams are a really, really big deal. And there's so many different types of scams that all you can really do to protect yourself is to adopt the types of behaviors and strategies that make it easy for you to avoid them. Being aware, knowledge is power, right? Knowledge is power in this situation and making sure that you are following your own practices all of the time will keep you safe. And while we can never be completely unhackable, we can certainly increase our awareness of the attacker's capabilities and motivations so we can learn to deceive them by changing our digital behaviors and implementing cybersecurity best practices that make us a harder target. And of course, to ultimately make our information harder to steal. In the infamous words of Sun Tzu, the greatest victory is that which requires no fighting. I hope that you will find the techniques and tactics that you hear on the Unhackable podcast to be useful. Our digital well-being and the future of other generations depends on all of our efforts combined. This is Unhackable, solving cybersecurity challenges with grit, one principle at a time. This is Mike Storm, and until next time, thanks for listening.